Hello and welcome to Abuse Isn't What You Think. I'm your host, Jackie Graybill. This episode features the very first interview I ever recorded for this podcast and took place in September of 2021 as I was preparing to finish my dissertation for my master's, which was in understanding domestic and sexual violence. You'll notice that the audio quality isn't as good because I hadn't gotten my Blue Yeti Nano for Christmas yet. You'll also notice that my guest, Christine Cochiola, asked me a question first. I was a little starstruck because she's a New York University professor and I heard her speak at a conference about coercive control, which is what my dissertation was about. She had helped pass something called Jennifer's Law in the state of Connecticut. It's a coercive control law. My dissertation was about coercive control law in the United States. So she was a little bit of a rock star to me. I got a little nervous. And when she asked me about my story at the beginning of the interview, I got a little choked up. But with the magic of editing, I was able to cut out the three minutes where I was choking and coughing up a lung. So fortunately, you won't have to hear that. You never know what your story is going to bring up when you tell it to somebody else. Initially, this interview was set up for dissertation research I was doing, but I ended up not being able to use it after all. Since we'd already set up the interview, we decided to go ahead with it, and I ended up using it for my podcast. I hope you enjoy this interview with the esteemed professor, Christine Cochiola from New York University. So tell me a little bit about where you are and what you're doing. I am in London right now, finishing up my dissertation at the University of Worcester, and I'm getting a master's in understanding domestic and sexual violence, which has been an amazing course. It's been a weird year because of COVID. Almost all of it's been online, but you know, it is what it is. It's good content still. I escaped from an abusive marriage when I lived in Nashville and just have been intrigued with all the research and understanding what happened to me as I go through that. I was fortunate in that I left after being married for 18 months. It hadn't gotten to the physical point. So it was so helpful to understand coercive control and the role that that plays in everything. So you're originally from Nashville? Originally from Seattle. Moved to Nashville to do the singer-songwriter thing. And then met my now ex-husband. I didn't know anything about abuse or course of control, any of that. Quite a change to move from Nashville to London. It is. So I grew up in Seattle and then moved to Nashville. Then at the end of 2019, my ex-husband was just ramping up. And my parents, who lived in Washington, said, you know, why don't you come and stay with us for a while to get away from him? So I did. And then COVID happened. (laughs) So I decided to do the master's and my little guy, I got him trained to be an assistance dog so he can be with me everywhere. So yes, he's my little PTSD assistance dog. Very nice. Wow. It's been quite a journey then. I mean, I think that's the thing about coercive controls. It's so insidious, right? You don't even you're blindsided by it when you actually connect all the dots, but that's the goal of the abuser. The goal is that you don't even really know what's going on. Right. Yeah. I think of it sometimes in the analogy of a strategy game, like a board game, and they're setting up all the rules and you don't even know you're playing. And the, the goal of the game is they win if you can't escape. Right. (laughs) Yeah. 
my ex yeah. was very into strategy games and now that I know everything I know, it makes sense. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yep. It does. Yeah. <laughs> I actually use the analogy when I recently submitted a paper on children, prey and pawn, because my focus area is that children are beyond witnesses and that they're living the same constrained lives as their victim parent, but nobody really notices that they're like hiding in plain sight is another title I've used. And I, I haven't quite put my finger on what the best title is, but I did pray and pawn this time because I feel like they're either the prey overtly of the abuser or covertly. And then the pawn, they're used as a game piece. And, and part of that game, I used the analogy of think of a stage and you're in a play, but you're not, you're in the scene, but you don't even know you're in the scene. I don't know if the child abuse review journal will like it, but that, <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I used and I hope they accept it. So I've only published once. Springer did a shared trauma book as soon as COVID hit and they asked for us to submit. And so my NYU director at the time, she's now on sabbatical. She wrote intensively after 9-11 on trauma. So she asked us all to write and some of us got accepted, which was fantastic. And I wrote about the experiences of children coming home from college due to COVID and sheltering in place with an abuser, because that's what my children had to do. But they didn't know he was an abuser. When I left him, I was married 26 years. So it was very insidious. I think he's probably what I would call a very significant covert malignant narcissist. I think Dr. Grande, if you've watched his videos, he talks about psychopath factor one and factor two. Psychopath factor two is this really malignant covert narcissist that will do anything for retaliation, like almost anything. So he was just so upset that I left him that post-separation abuse ensued. But I began to notice about 10 years ago, there were some signs and then, you know, it get better as it gets better. They charm you. I mean, I got a beautiful wedding band in 2016. Little did I know he had a whole other life, this whole marriage. And when my daughter was nine and my son was 10, the first time and the only time I thought he had an affair with my children's music teacher, who was a good friend of ours. When I left the home with them for the weekend to take space. And when I came back, he begged me to come back. And when I came back, he, you know, come back, we'll work it out. We'll go to therapy, which was always the case. We'll go to therapy. I'm telling you the story because it's how it impacts children. By the way, I came back and I'd worked that night. I taught at night sometimes at the college where I teach full-time and I went to work and my daughter told me a year after we separated, he had locked her in the home. So she couldn't go to work. He hated that she had a part-time job at my sister's dog sitting. So you know how they try to isolate you from family members and everything. He just hated that she had this job and he had done this before where she was 17 and he had turned off the electricity in the garage. So she couldn't pull the car out. She was so angry. She came in the house. So that ensued into a larger event, unfortunately for her. But what he did do that 10 years prior is he told both of my children that your mom is crazy. She's depressed. 
don't believe anything she says, you can't trust her. So he started the tactics of what some people call parental alienation, which we really don't want to say anymore. I don't know if you know that whole story. So I did use parental alienation in my first article because there's a lot of really great researchers, Baker, Ben Ami, they've done a lot of really great research on parental alienation and solidify it as a real theory, but because of its attachment to Gardner and because of, do you know the whole Gardner story? I'm not sure about Gardner, but I know that men's groups and abusers in particular have been lobbying to do the parental alienation. Correct. Correct. So Gardner came up with the theory and the problem is he never actually tested the theory. He never researched it. He just said, this is what happens in these situations. And he actually condoned fathers having sex with their daughters or with their children also. So he became someone that was used really significantly. And unfortunately, who used him is Woody Allen. He didn't use Gardner, but he used parental alienation against Mia Farrow. And so it really gained momentum around that case also. And so then father's rights now say when a woman accuses domestic abuse, that actually she's trying to alienate. And Joan Mayer just did a study in 2019. And I don't want to get the statistics wrong, but it's something like every time a woman says that she has been domestically abused, she loses custody 50% of the time or twice as often because judges are looking at that as parental alienation, not as accurate. And what we know is that another study done said that victims claim domestic abuse falsely 4% of the time, only 4% of the time. So there's a whole really huge going down another rabbit hole, but there's a whole huge court accountability, judicial accountability movement going on, especially in the United States right now. But if you haven't listened to The Trap by Jess Hill, She's been doing a podcast. She wrote, See What You Made Me Do. She's one of our keynotes at our International Coercive Control Conference. But she talks about systemic abuse and about how judges very often, due to a belief system that's false, due to lack of education, right? This idea that when victims say this, they really are just trying to pit children against their offenders when it's actually not true most of the time. When a victim claims that there's sexual abuse of the children, the rates of losing custody go up even higher. So we are not acknowledging, and there's a lot of research out there, but you know that not all narcissists are pedophiles, but all pedophiles are narcissists. And really understanding the risk factors related to children. And so my ex who I lived with thinking that he was a good father. My children thought he was a good father. And here he was for about nine or so years, insidiously abusing them and turning them away from me on purpose. So I became, I don't know if you've watched Dr. Romney at all. Have you watched her videos on YouTube? I haven't. Dr. Romney. Oh my gosh, you will become addicted because (laughs) she talks sincerely about the tactics of abusers and abusers often have scapegoats, which is what you were. Sometimes one of the children becomes a scapegoat. Oftentimes there's a golden child. My daughter became his golden child. And so what he did is he triangulated in the family and I couldn't understand why she was so tough. I just thought she's spirited. She's tough. But the reality is all along, she was hearing all of these messages. She told me it happened her whole life. 
He was giving her messages about me. Oh, look at mom. She thinks she's, look at her. She Because she's a runner, she thinks she's better than you. Things like that he would say to her to harm the relationship. And so what kind of abuse is that? And he indoctrinated her into the abuse pattern. And so sometimes she was actually, I look back and I realized she was his proxy in the abuse. So my monkey. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. So Joan Meyer would be a study that you would probably really want to take a look at M-E-I-E-R, the Saunders study, which talks about judicial accountability. There is this again, huge movement going on right now. And Jess Hill talks about this judicial accountability. The trap is her podcast. It's fascinating. And it's primarily focused on, it's all of these types of abusive relationships, but she's from Australia. So she's doing it from an Australian perspective. Obviously, Evan Stark, right? He's on my committee. He lives right here in Woodbridge, Connecticut, which is totally fascinating. Yeah. And Judith Herman, I'm sure you've read her book. I actually have it right here. Trauma and Recovery. I haven't read that one yet. So Judith actually, some people say she was the creator of coercive control. She actually started talking about it before him, but he quantified it for lack of a better word. So she has been instrumental in creating what she calls intimate terrorism or psychological warfare. So the legislation, California and Hawaii have passed similar legislation. Connecticut's law is the strongest law. I don't know if you know, Scotland has the model law. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so we're having actually a workshop in Connecticut on October 21st. It's open to anyone and it's to explain all of the pieces of Jennifer's law. And it's explaining what coercive control is, the impact on children, and then really unpacking the law. For people so that they understand it. So that if other people want to pass a similar law in other states. And so Connecticut Protective Moms is a group that I found here in Connecticut. And this woman, Betsy, was really behind. She knew Alex Kazer, who passed the law personally. And the two of them just joined forces. And they've been trying to pass this law or something like it for the past 10 years. So really a lot of hard work behind the scenes. And so my role was just, I spoke a judicial hearing. I came into the game late about a year and a half ago. And, but because of my experiences as a survivor, I don't know how much you know about me, but I actually have been educating on domestic abuse since the age of 19. I've been a domestic violence counselor and I also have been teaching on the topic and didn't even know. I'm talking like every semester do the post-separation abuse or the power and control wheel in my courses and never saying that's how insidious it was. What, yeah. what was the moment where you realized that was happening and you were like, oh my gosh, how have I not realized? Was there a moment for you that happened or was it gradually or? So that's what my study is about. My study is about what are the characteristics? What are the the things about victims that make them good prey. So for me in 2014, when that incident happened, where I found out he was having that, no, that was 20, 2009. And he just apologized and said he was sorry, but it was really interesting. We still had to see her throughout my children's schooling. And she was definitely enjoying, she would come near us. She didn't just stay away. You know what I mean? And I would notice him looking at her still. And, and I would say something and he would say, you're crazy or stop it. Or I can't go to the school with you because you just make it too stressful. So then he would stop going to events or we would go separately. 
And probably what he was doing, because my daughter has caught him with other women while he's with this primary woman, probably what he was doing was spending time with other people. He's a serial cheater. And we know that most of these people tend to be sex addicts. So he had these two different people and he would show me one side. So I think in 2014, he actually threatened my life. He accused me of having an affair because I went and had a drink with a high school friend, typical, right? And he threatened my life. I will slit your throat, you whore. And then my sister and my brothers are telling me, go to the police. And then he begged for me to come back. So I don't think I really had a lot of different things. I think that when I did, there was an incident. So there was a compilation. I would say that it was years and years of him minimizing me and diminishing me and me saying, I'm not a good person because I was becoming reactive and I don't like who I am in this relationship. And I would say, I don't like who I am in this relationship. And he would say, that's my fault. And I said, no, I don't like who I am in this relationship. And he would say, yeah, just look at you projecting on me. He would use all those words. And then he made an allegation about me being loud in the kitchen because I was angry. And I actually was listening to happy music and making my sister her birthday cake. And then I decided to go back up to the spare bedroom so this is like the third time, probably fifth time I've quote unquote left him. And he started sending me emails and he sent 3000 harassing, threatening emails in 13 months. And it took me 13 months to take them to the police. He mm-hmm. locked me out of my home. He changed all the locks. So I couldn't even get into the home. He locked me out of my closet. He took all of my jewelry. I had thought I could put it in my jewelry box. He stole my wedding bands, my engagement rings, everything. And it wasn't until he kept being horrifyingly mean to me and sending me emails for 13 months that said, no one will ever love you. Your children will know who you really are. You've lost everything. There'd be about a hundred a month and 10 of those would be, how could you take away our family? I love you so much. You're my soulmate. But if he hadn't been so horrible to me, I wouldn't have left. I know it. And so what is it about victims that make them stay? And I think we have to re-traumatize ourselves. It's almost like these people have to be so horrifyingly abusive that it's blatant because it would have been so much easier if he had just hit me and he never hit me. And so the study asks these questions, like I do an interview, but then it asks at the end, these questions, what type of a person do you think you are, Jackie? Do you think you're a highly optimistic glass half full person or a pessimistic person? Optimistic. <laughs> How forgiving are you? Would you say on a scale of one to 10 in that relationship, maybe now you've changed, but in that relationship, were you in general with everyone, but certainly in that relationship, more forgiving or willing to overlook more things than you would now? Yes, for sure. How empathic do you find yourself? Very. <laughs> right? Yeah. Do you find yourself a fixer? Do you want to help people? Like you want to fix things. You want to make things better. To some extent, although my brain goes to the Enneagram and I'm like, well, not a two. I'm not the helper. I'm the Enneagram nine, the peacemaker. <laughs> yes. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Enneagram Sandra Brown study, you must've read that one. Then she interviewed 600 victims. 
have I never heard of this one? Oh yeah, San- Sandra Brown. I think it's 600 victims. She's from Rutgers. And yeah, the Enneagram people who are victims are highly agreeable and conscientious. They are off the charts in those two areas. And then there's somebody else who did a study on narcissists and they're obviously highly disagreeable. Evan Stark, when I told him about my study, he said, that's okay. But he framed it in that it's almost looking at what's wrong with the victim. And he said, I have his exact quote, when an abuser has his knee on a victim's neck, it doesn't matter who she is. And I totally agree with that. But I feel like because of patriarchy, Yes. Women are, we are fostered to be empathic and forgiving and to try to fix things, be the peacemaker. That's truly what it is. Let me just figure this out. I'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. And um, make excuses for whatever they're going through. Oh, he's just being like that because he went through whatever. Mm -hmm. He just lost his job. That's why it's always needing to find an answer for their behavior. In my case. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's what it is, right? Yeah. Or maybe I did something wrong. Right. If I had just not gone out with my girlfriends on Saturday night, this wouldn't have happened. Or in my case, I wore yoga pants once and he was so mad at me for going to the grocery store in yoga pants. I had a long coat on. I was covering my butt. Even if you weren't though, you're allowed to go outside wearing whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. So that's about control, coercion and control, right? Yeah. Yeah. Question for you. Have you looked at all into the difference that one's background makes? Specifically, I just bring this up because I come from a super conservative Christian background. And I feel like I was even more than the mainstream, that particular background encourages, oh, be forgiving, even the terminology of submissive. And I feel like I wasn't raised with really good boundaries. I feel like that was really lacking. And I'm super interested in spiritual abuse in the church. I actually did a report on that as part of my master's. And I feel like it's almost even worse because they tend to, a lot of time churches tend to be an insular community. So it's really hard to escape from that, especially churches don't understand abuse and they get blamed. And it's just a whole nother level, especially when you are being told, oh, God wants you to do this, or God wants you to submit to me or whatever. And then it almost creates this crisis of faith. It's like, well, this doesn't feel right, but do you know what I mean? There's just so many more dynamics there. I'm curious if you've come across any of that. Just in my circles with people talking about it, like we are now, I think I'm one of the people speaking at the conference is speaking about cults because it's a slippery slope right? When you watch the movie Spotlight and how much we hid the sexual abuse in the Catholic church. And is that a patriarchal thing? And is that kind of the basis of a lot of religions, right? It's about submission. Well, I think that would be a really cool area to investigate further for sure. Yeah. No, my sister and I always talk about Catholic guilt, forgiveness, boundaries, not having boundaries. And I think there was an expectation when we were younger and maybe in your family, because it sounds like from a conservative religious family. My family was, but I'm a generation. I'm assuming I'm a little bit older than you. A little bit? (laughs) I know. I think consider. Maybe not as much as you think. Yeah. yeah. But I think that there's an expectation in families and old fashioned, 
call them old-fashioned families. And then in religious families, there's an expectation that there's traditional roles. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting because in my family, my parents were really conservative and are very conservative and spirituality was very important. And there was an expectation to follow all the rules, mm-hmm. but they were also way to like, even my father is so loving to my mother and she is so loving to him. And not that that's a bad thing, but that they were so kind to everyone. That was our rule in our house. Just always be nice. Always be kind, be forgiving. Like you said, I didn't feel subjugated in my house is my point. Yeah. Yeah. It's a positivity bias. Yes. Um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about that in his book about strangers and how we relate to strangers and I don't know if you've read that book. It's really fascinating. He he talks a lot about race in that. And he has a section on spies. And there were some spies that were working both sides and why it went for so long unnoticed. And the role that positivity bias has in that and plays in that. I feel like we as victims, we have, when we were victims, we, we have that positivity bias, a lot of us, because we, we want to think the best of them. We want to think the best of people. That's, that's probably what you're talking about when you're talking about your research, but. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It is fascinating. It's a little overwhelming. I think sometimes, right. When you've been through it and you're going to start a podcast, you said. Yes. 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 So hopefully this can be included. Hopefully. That's <laughs> we'll exciting. Yeah. That's really yeah. exciting. Yeah. But I just feel like there's a need for people to hear the stories, the real stories of what people have gone through, especially in the U.S. I feel like I was just talking with my supervisor about this, that in the U.K., coercive control is a widely known concept now because they've just hammered it, hammered it, hammered it. But in the U.S., it's not as widely known. So it's going to take talking about it a lot for society to really start to understand those dynamics. Absolutely. Like you said, it was violent towards you, but look at all that he did, not incidents-based, but the process of depriving you of your agency in so many ways for so many years. Yeah. So Susan Weitzman writes a really amazing book. It's called Not to People Like Us. And I feel like I had a very successful career. I had great self-worth. I sometimes get a little defensive when people say she had low self-esteem and I'm like, I didn't. I didn't either. I didn't either. I was great. (laughs) I just released two albums. I was doing awesome. I was like, Hey, okay. Now I just would like to share my life with somebody. So I got on (laughs) eHarmony. eHarmony of all places. (laughs) I know. Right. But when I look back though, it's interesting because we talked on the phone and via messaging for a month before we met. Ah. And I feel like that gave him time to learn what I was interested in, my personality, my likes, my dislikes, so he could shape himself into the type of person that I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I was talking to a girlfriend about online dating yesterday. And I said, my advice to you is not to talk to that person for a long time. Just go on the date almost as soon as you can. So they don't have that opportunity because it's, Something that I don't think eHarmony probably thinks about when they do the process of getting to know the other person. Right. And And these people are so fake anyway, that eHarmony would be hoodwinked just like 
maybe you were right. Exactly. I think you, yeah, bring up, that's a very good point. Right. So somebody said to me, one of the key characteristics is charming. And I thought, you know what kind of is kind of is that's the facade. My ex always had with my kids. He was just the fun, happy. Oh, let's go watch TV. In the meantime, mom was cleaning up the whole kitchen. I didn't want to disrupt that. I wanted them to have time with their kids, but it wasn't fair. But how do you get mad at that? Like, how do you say, wait a minute, I'm cleaning the kitchen right here. Can I have some help? Oh boy, here she goes. So then I learned to stop just bringing that up, right? You just learn to stop. And I think your point about agency, for me, it's a stripping slowly of knowing myself, my autonomy. Like I, I knew myself at work, but at home, I didn't even know who I was anymore because I couldn't be who I was at home. I couldn't be myself. Have you read Jess Hill's book? See what you made me do. I haven't, but I literally just put it on my list on (laughs) on my library list. So I'm like, Oh, that looks so good. Yeah. I'll definitely add that. Oh, geez. It's startling. It really is startling how manipulative these people can be. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep on giving you people. Have you heard of Dr. Jess Taylor? That sounds familiar. What has she done? She's in the UK and she is a clinical psychologist and she is just being really out there about patriarchy. And she was interviewed by Laura Richards, who does the Dirty John. And they actually talked about Britney Spears and it was fascinating podcast. And Laura Richards podcasts are great anyway, but this one, when she interviews, because she talks about how Stockholm syndrome is a farce. Did you know that? No, no. Yes. I mean, I, I've sometimes seen trauma bonding as a form of Stockholm syndrome. So I'm really interested. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So like trauma bonding has never really been solidified as a theory. Stockholm syndrome. So <laughs> the story of the Swedish bank heist, and I don't remember the primary victim who basically is the reason why they came up with Stockholm syndrome. But if you listen to the podcast, you'll get it. So basically there was a psychologist who they called in to help with getting the hostages out of the bank. And in the meantime, there was a victim in the bank who said, the police are going to screw this up. We're all going to get killed. And she realized, and this goes back to fight, flight, or freeze. So fight, flight, or freeze is not even an actual real theory. It was based on men's responses, fight or flight, men's responses, not based on women. Women collaborate. Think about it. A woman's in a situation, she's going to be sexually assaulted. She's like, please, I'll give you whatever you want, or you can rape me, but don't hurt my children. There's always this collaboration. And so in that heist, the primary victim basically was collaborating with the abusers. And because she collaborated, this psychologist came up with Stockholm syndrome saying she was friends with them. She wasn't friends with them. She was collaborating to get out alive. And it's because of her. They got our life. It's because mm-hmm. of her. And so what men have done oftentimes like Gardner, like this psychologist is they create these theories based on women being victims, women being oppressed. Like instead of saying she was a strong woman and she figured out a way around this. And Dr. Jess Taylor is doing a lot of education. So she came up like the 37 reasons why meandry doesn't exist. The opposite of misogyny is meandry. So then people on LinkedIn, I follow her and people were adding reasons, other reasons. Like, you know, there are just so many stark examples 
for any men's rights groups who say that meandry is a real thing, it's bullshit. It's just totally not even accurate. So she's someone to really follow because she started a business about two or three years ago called Victim Focus. She's training people on how, have you heard of Victim Focus? Yes, Yes. I ran across that. Yes. Yes. So she's a force to be reckoned with. She's really making a significant name for herself right there. I think in London, actually. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Have you run across Christian Northrup's work? She's a doctor. So it's more from a women's health perspective. Granted, she's a little bit on the woo-woo side of things, I would say. But she has a book that she wrote about what she calls energy vampires. Oh, yes. I've read that one. Yeah. 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 Oh, so good. Just in the way that I think about him. Anything to suck the life out of you, honestly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you said that with the bill, with Jennifer's law, they'd been working on it for 10 years. And I find it interesting that all of these laws are just starting to be passed, just starting in 2020. What is it, do you think? Is it just an understanding of force of control, maybe, that is causing these bills in the U.S. to be passed around the same time? Or do you think it was COVID or just a push? Yeah, I think there's more of a grassroots effort to have them pass. So Susan Rubio, who passed the California law, she'll be speaking at our conference with Alex. And Susan is a victim. So when you have more women in power, I don't know if you know, Alex Kazer resigned as soon as the bill passed because she is a victim and no one knew it. She was in the process of divorce. We knew she didn't talk to her two children. She left her husband realizing that she was gay and had a partner. And he basically threw her down the gutter with the children. And even though they were young adults, and I think that passionate people who are passionate about the topic is helping people with positions of power. That's what's helping. I would say that there's a lot of pushback. So in Connecticut, we wanted to make sure that judges were trained. Makes sense. Yes. We had two laws that day at the judicial hearing. One was very weak. It didn't really mention coercive control at all. It just said that we needed to have more shelters and give more money to victims who were trying to leave. And the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence was supporting the weaker law because judicial supported the weaker law, because the Connecticut Bar Association supported the weaker law, because our law was requiring the judges be trained and lawyers be trained. And because the judicial department in the state of Connecticut gives $3 million to the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. So they're in bed with each other. So the only reason why our law passed is I just so happened to sign up first to speak. It said anybody can speak. And I signed up and I didn't know I was first. I was the first person to speak. So I was highlighted all over the news. Yeah. But we had Rachel Evan Wood speak, Marilyn Manson's ex-girlfriend. We had Laura Richards speak. We had, gosh, there was a representative from New Haven. So a small local representative from New Haven who had been a victim, she spoke. We had so many prolific speakers. That's why. So I think if you have positionality, then you're going to get the law passed. California's law is much weaker than Connecticut's. Somebody's coming to visit me. Um, (laughs) I've never been a person to have a cat on a table, but... (laughs) I, no judgment puppy. whatsoever. I have my puppy. Really, he's on my well, bed. 
my pup <laughs> just passed away three weeks ago. So she's been my saving grace. Yeah. But yeah, you, you say puppy Terry and he's looking at me now. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. I saw a picture. He's so cute. Um, yeah. So I would say positionality and you need to have empowered people behind the legislation to have it pass. And so right now in the United States, as I said, there's a lot of people who are really interested in, um, I don't know if you're on Instagram, if you follow me, there's a lot of people, custody piece, uh, advocacy for victims, ACE, a case for ACE, which is adverse childhood experiences. There's a huge movement to create protection of children. So 700 children have died since 2008 at the hands of an abuser because a judge allowed the abuser to share custody. So if we don't look at coercive control as the foundation of all domestic abuse, because it is, yes, it is the foundation of domestic abuse. Even if an abuser has never abused you, his final act of abuse will be to hurt you or your child. And so we know that only about 10% of domestic abuse is not about power and control. The rest are And so what's going on now is there's a split. There are coercive control laws that are trying to gain momentum, but there are now moms who are, or families who are trying to create the child safe act. And it's basically saying shared parenting is not enough. And so how do you do that in a men's rights world? How do you do that in a world where parental alienation is being used against victims? So Kyra's law in New York is gaining momentum. Caden's law in Pennsylvania, named after children who were murdered by the abuser. So he had already abused her. And then he was allowed to have shared custody. I think the interesting facet of all of this is nobody's really talking about child welfare, meaning child welfare agencies. Child welfare, I actually just did a consulting job for the Connecticut Child Welfare Agency, and they are still talking about sharing custody with abusers. So there's a lot of nuances to this whole thing. So I think what's gaining momentum right now, though, is the Child Safe Act, which is the overarching law that says there should not be shared custody with abusers. So coercive control laws are still there, but they're not gaining the same momentum the children's law that you were talking about, is that a federal one or is that on a state level? State by state. state. Okay. Do you feel like it's even possible to have a federal coercive control bill like the UK has? No, no, I don't. So for example, in Connecticut, when we just passed this law, a child's physical safe and emotional well-being was the 14th consideration in child custody. That's across the board in most states. It's not seen as primary. So the wording is very interesting. It says child safety and well-being could be a consideration. It doesn't say has to be the primary consideration. So if we don't even have that on the books federally, then why would anybody even consider coercive control when a lot of people think people talking about coercive control are just being like women who are angry? You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. So the goal is to have someone like if you know someone in Tennessee who has positionality, who has a loved one or themselves who has been a victim and can get in touch with legislators, because the problem is that domestic violence does not include non-physical abuse anywhere, except for now these three states. So if I got 3,000 harassing, threatening emails and I go to court and say, this is what he's saying to me, I'm at risk. Now are my children at risk? No judge is going to look at that, right? So Connecticut's law 
makes it part of domestic violence language, but it does not make it a criminal offense yet. Now you have to go the criminal route. Yes. So Connecticut's is just civil. It isn't criminal yet. Scotland's is for, yeah. do you see a world where that could happen eventually? Oh. Or probably not? No. I don't know. I think slowly, I think we really have to start talking about, I think the way that Jess talks about it, or actually Bell Hooks talks about it. She does a little snippet in the Jess Hill podcast on systemic abuse. And I think we need to really look at patriarchal masculinity and what Bell Hooks calls is patriarchy, capitalism, and imperialism. And so until we start looking at that and have both men and women join this cause. So Michael Flood is a really great researcher. I don't know if you researched him at all, but he talks about the role of men in patriarchy and domestic abuse. And he's from Australia and he's astounding. He's done great research and talked about this, but until we begin to shift that narrative, I don't know. No, you're right. And the systemic aspect of it as well. If you look at the presidency, (laughs) if, if we're willing to give people at that level a pass with their misogyny, it makes sense that there wouldn't be as much of a push to understand and federalize a law that protects that. It's interesting. We talk about systemic abuse. I've been listening to, there's a podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with Mars Hill Church. It was a big mega church in Seattle and it got famous because the pastor, Mark Driscoll, he used stand-up comedians as his influence for his sermons, I guess you could say his messages, but he was definitely, is definitely an abuser. And it's interesting listening to the podcast through the lens of knowing that and the church eventually collapsed. And now he is in Arizona with a new church, but being from Seattle, I attended that church for about six months with an ex-boyfriend who now I know was very covertly an abuser. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that he would be drawn to that church. But I also had a lot of friends and some family that attended that church. And to look at how he used his fame to allow this abuse to go on for, it was 20 years that, that the church was around. It's just astounding and the people that were hurt as a result and what he counseled it's very patriarchal very men have to be men it's just very toxic masculinity and there's a lot going on in the u.s right now but that's an interesting breakdown of all of that it's a little bit fascinating yeah it is fascinating yeah got to implement some self-care in there sometimes because it can be overwhelming i think yeah that's true speaking of self-care how did you get to the point where you are right now, after you left, after your marriage came crumbling down, how did you pick back up the pieces? What was your process? What was your self-care? So the divorce was final in 2019. When I was talking about all these women in particular who are pushing for child safe acts and things like that. Also it's the vexatious litigation. I literally had to walk away from everything that I had worked my whole life for in order to just end it because he was going to keep bringing me back to court and making me spend more money on an attorney. I had to decide. So the divorce was final in July of 2019. And I actually got into the doctorate program that summer. I definitely started playing tennis, which is something that I always wanted to do, which was great. But in general, I literally just dove right in. And I think my trauma response has been to just keep going. And I'm realizing 
now that the kids are finally back to college. So my kids came home. And again, that's why I wrote that article about sheltering in place. So they had some experiences. They were realizing their own victimization. And that was really heartbreaking. And then they were home for a long time. And I have a little two bedroom apartment. And I finally have some space now. And I'm starting to realize I need to start pulling back a little bit. So I don't know if I ever, I think I just became much more of an advocate, but I'm not sure that's the role I need to continue doing anymore because I literally just hit the ground running and just haven't stopped. And I think it's a trauma response. Like you, you immersed yourself in this research simply to cope. I have to understand it. I have to wrap my head around it. I have to know I'm not alone. I have to be validated. I still sometimes say, maybe he wasn't that bad. And then I I literally look back at old emails and read them. Or I, of course, audio taped him many times and listened to him again. And it's only been though, two years since the divorce has been final, you know, and I was with him 26 years and actually 26 years married, but I met him when I was 16. So now I've just aged myself. So I was with him. Yeah. 35 years or so. Yeah. Between the beginning and the divorce. My divorce is final in June, 2019. So. Ah, So grateful to hear that you saw the signs. You figured it out sooner. Yeah, I am too, because we were almost at the point where we were getting ready to start trying to have kids. And I was seeing a therapist at the time, which was amazing because she understood abuse. And she was like, whoa, flag on the play. No, just wait. And then she recommended two books to me. One was The Verbally Abusive Relationship. Oh, Patricia Evans. I was going to mention that one to you. That was huge, wasn't it? That was my book. That was the book. Yes. Right. You, right. You, you asked me what the thing was. That was definitely a moment there. So I forgot about that. I was going to mention that book to you. Yeah. And Lundy Boncroft's. That was the other book. one. Why does he do that? Yep. Mm-hmm. That was. Yep. When I drove out of the parking lot that day, I had gotten it from the library on an audiobook, And I literally started listening to the verbally abusive relationship while I was driving away from my therapy session and bells were going off. I was like, this is what happened. That, and it started connecting up. And then I started to almost view my interactions with him from a little more of an objective lens. Like, right. is he doing this? Is he doing that? And it started to just all play out and he started getting worse. Yeah, it was crazy. He, because um, you disengaged. So the moment we start to disengage, they actually intensify. So those were definitely moments for me, but then he would become so angry that I would then, again, they say the trauma bond isn't, I, I think it's real. I would actually try hard to make him happy again, because I think it was such an intensive length of time for me versus in your case, maybe it was a little easier to pull away. I think that's yeah. what happens to victims. I've noticed that in my private practice is that the longer someone is with someone, the harder it is to pull away. They get lassoed back in. Yes. Hoover, <laughs> the hoovering, <laughs> exactly. which I've realized since being here, they don't call it vacuuming. They call it hoovering. I'm like a British person probably invented that term hoovering. <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that makes sense that it would take longer because the relationship, especially if you met him when you were 16, that's mm-hmm. amazing. Just amazing in length. I met him in 2014 and I was 32. Now I'm dating myself. And it was crazy too, because after I left, I told him, 
if there's any chance of me moving back in, you have to attend our batter's intervention class. And he eventually got kicked out of the class. He was so bad. And he was the only one that was there voluntarily. Wow. The rest of the, I want to say, I almost said gentlemen in the class, the rest of the guys in the class, the men had been court ordered to be there because of physical violence. And he was so bad, so much of a narcissist, so much of a, you know, that they eventually were lobbied the teacher, like, you got to kick this guy out. We just can't handle this, which is crazy. So we started attending that. And I had a friend come in town from Florida was Hurricane Irma. And he had been at our wedding and we went to grab dinner and my ex-husband, I was still in contact with him. We had some meals with this friend. So I was having dinner with my friend and look up and who should come into the restaurant my ex-husband and he didn't know where we were he didn't it was the most jarring thing and he made this huge scene in the restaurant it was crazy he did it was crazy and it was at that moment I thought if he could do that I didn't think he was capable of doing something as crazy as that what is he capable of doing exactly yeah so then I went and stayed at the domestic violence shelter and a couple days later found the tracker he put on my car GPS tracker. That's how mm-hmm. he found me. And after that, I pretty much didn't have contact with him. After that, I just saw him the day of our divorce, which I'm lucky that I put the no contact order in and followed it because it's so hard to do as a victim because you still love the person, you know, often. You think they can't be that bad. That's how I would say it. I'm like, that really can't be true. He can't be that bad. There's something wrong with me. My ex had me tracked for at least five years. I found out he had every single thing on my phone for five years. He had my car tracked and my computer up to a year after I divorced. The year after I divorced, something weird happened to my computer and I brought it over to my friend's house. And he went in and he said, he's still remotely accessing you. He was an administrator on my computer. I dropped coffee on my computer like five years before and he had fixed it and he had been remotely accessing my computer for up to a year after my divorce. Oh yeah. I actually just got a new car because he knows what I drive and he'll follow me. He lives unfortunately close by and I'm planning on moving soon. I don't know when, but when I'm done with my doctorate, but the point is sometimes I'm like, was he really that bad? And then I just said that out loud and that's the reminder, but isn't it funny how we have the significant cognitive dissonance? Our brain wants to protect us. And that's my next study. So my next study is twofold. One is gaslighting by therapists. I was gaslit by therapists. They tried to work with him. I believe it, which book there's one of the, it, it might be Lundy Bancroft's where he says, do not go to therapy with the abuser. Do not go. <laughs> it's right. one of them. I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. And then what if you don't know that they're an abuser? So then you go to therapy because you're trying to fix your marriage, even after he threatened your life. Yeah. The <laughs> therapist doesn't say anything. He threatened my life. <laughs> anyway, that should, be, that should be a bell. That should be yeah. a warning sign. Yeah. I went with mine and my, our marriage therapist said, that we first needed to see other therapists like individually. And he got so upset about that, that he actually was triangulating about the therapist. He was so angry with her. So Mm -hmm. he just went and got an intern at the church we were attending who didn't know anything about anything. was like, oh, it's your marriage. It's not you. But I had gone and gotten a legitimate therapist who knew somewhat about abuse 
And then when my insurance turned over, I went to somebody she recommended that was on a sliding scale. It's called the Refuge Center in Nashville. And if they hadn't had that sliding scale working with different therapists who would come in, I don't even know where I'd be because she was an advocate. She knew exactly what was going on and was so helpful. Yeah, she was the one that told me about those books. So I feel like I'm so lucky that I had that experience of going to somebody who knew what they were talking about. I guess that's another piece of the puzzle when you're talking about society as a whole. You've got to have the judges. You've got to have police that understand it. You've got to have the legislation, therapists that understand it. Because if you don't, I can't wait to read your paper. Oh, <laughs> Actually, both of them. I want to read the one that you've already done. Yeah, I think it comes up if you Google me. It's right there. I think the cognitive dissonance of systems who refuse to believe that this is a real thing and then gaslighting. And then my ex was good friends with all the police. He used to tell me that. And then when I went to the police to report them, they actually were horrible to me. I went saying I have 3,000, I had a flash drive, 3,000 harassing, threatening emails. And I was accused of cheating on him by the police. I was also accused of putting my daughter in the middle. The divorce process had just started and she was aligned with him 110%. That matters to the police if you cheated or not. I mean, like there's um, not a law that says... You can't no, but so but he was friends with all of them. Later on, I found out he would go to the same bar as them. And he would say, oh, my wife's crazy. She's doing this. She's doing that. So that when I did go in, he maybe thought I was going to go in and report him. When I did go in, now they have his perspective. And that's what they used against me. Yeah. So, and Is the victim's really advocate was horrible. <laughs> horrible. There's just so many layers to this that victims are not heard. And I'm grateful some people have not the worst circumstances. It's horrible that you were abused, but you got out and yes. you had some good guidance, which is a really great story. Yes. yes. I'm lucky. I really am lucky. I'm grateful. Yeah. I guess if you want to call being an abuse victim, lucky. That's true. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's true. That's a good well, point. I'm yeah. Grateful that I was able to escape, I guess I would yes. say on the first try because the average is seven, seven mm -hmm. tries. Any final things that you would tell somebody who is experiencing coercive control and or abuse, whatever they cognitively understand that they're going through? I would tell them, you're not crazy. This isn't you. You deserve as much support around you. I think the one thing that I would say is that victims can't do this alone. They need a village. And so for me, when I have victims come into my office, I'm like, would your mom be willing to come in with you? Or can we have your sister in? Because for example, I have a client right now, she's leaving him and he thankfully is allowing her to leave quote unquote, but her parents are minimizing the whole thing. They're like, you did just buy a house. You just had a baby. And I'm like, well, can I have your mom in? Can we talk? Because I feel like if she just had that extra support, she'd be that much stronger. So I just think it takes a village. It's not easy to leave. I mean, I had siblings telling me to leave, but then every time I forgave him, everybody else did because they were trying to keep the peace with us, right? No, 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 no. A victim actually needs someone to say, get the F out of there. I'm here for you if you don't. <laughs> I'm yes. here for you if you don't. And I won't judge you, but this is not healthy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Having those voices is really important. Yeah. 
Can I do one last thing that might seem a little silly, maybe? So I did some acting when I was in Seattle and working on my speaking because I want to be speaking on course of control. I have developed a character that I call Peach Angelica and she's my inner cheerleader. And it's the most helpful to listen to what she says as opposed to my inner critic. And can Peach Angelica talk to you for a second? (laughs) I know that might be super silly. (laughs) Sure. Christine, it has just been the biggest honor to chat with you today. Oh my gosh, girl, you are amazing. You were like super woman. Like you went through this crazy traumatic experience and what you brought out of it is gold for other people. Saving other people's lives. What else could you do with your life that could be better than that? And not only that, but you are kind and loving and so many people are going to be influenced positively because of what you have done. You've taken something horrible and ugly and you are turning it into gold. As you go through your healing process, just know, you probably do know this, but on days you don't, you are beautiful and well-spoken and smart and, ah, oh, you're just incredible. And it's been an amazing lesson to speak with you today. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Peach Angel. Peach Angel? Peach Angelica. Peach Angelica. Yes. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Let me know if you have any other questions. And honestly, it seems like you're doing just amazing work. So keep it up. Awesome. It's been a huge pleasure. And send me a link to your podcast. I would love to hear it. I definitely will. And I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to come to the Course of Control Conference. Awesome. Yeah. I actually just sent my dissertation supervisor the information about it this morning. (laughs) I found it. I'm like, this is great. You have to hear about this. Awesome. Thank you so much, Christine. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye. Thank you. Bye.